This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hi, this is Cody Halfmoon, and this is another episode of Star Stuff, a space podity podcast by Lowell Observatory. Today, we have a really exciting guest, uh, Dr. Kathy Olkin. This week, we are celebrating International Women and Girls in Science Day, just February 11th. Um, joining us, we also have Kevin Schindler, our historian, and Wesley Sotomaker, our educator. Thank you so much, Dr. Kathy, for joining us. Hi, Cody. Thanks for having me. And um, especially on this awesome week when we get to celebrate women in science and you have such an incredible like career and background. I can't wait to jump into that uh, and learn how you've accomplished all the cool things that you've done. Kevin, can you give us a, an idea of this, um, some sort of festival that we're having? Yeah, some, some planet out there that we talk about occasionally. Planet? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> three. Um, this month is the 92nd anniversary of the discovery of Pluto. And so starting three years ago, we began a I Heart Pluto Festival, we call it, where we celebrate all things Pluto um, because so much of Pluto's heritage, both scientific and cultural, have ties to northern Arizona. So we do this festival. And the highlight of each festival, gosh, there are a lot of highlights, I guess, but for me, one of the highlights is bringing in scientists to talk about the research and their inspiration. And this year, we're really excited because our, our main event on the 18th, which is Discovery Day, um, we have um, Dr. Olkin joining Dr. Don Johansson, who discovered the fossil hominid Lucy back in the 1970s. Um, Dr. Alan Stern, uh, the mission, gosh, I'm not sure his official title, PI. Yep, NASA, uh, the PI of the New Horizons mission. Right. Which I hear is private investigator. Oh, which still sorry. Sounds really cool. <laughs> yes. Principal investigator. Alan sometimes calls himself the principal instigator. Uh, but that but sounds it, right after yeah. our, our talk with him. He's not the only one that calls himself that either. <laughs> and we'll also have Al Tombaugh, Clyde Tombaugh's son, and Dr. Nancy Curry Gregg, who's flown into space four times. And so this collection of scientists are going to get together on the 18th and talk about discovery and kind of that human drive to explore um, that's part of our species. And and they all have such great stories to share. So we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, I can't wait to be there and, and take part in the panel. It's it's going to be really exciting. What a great group of people, really, you know, diverse uh, experiences. So it's going to be fun. And it's also a homecoming of sorts because, Kathy, you worked here in Flagstaff. We'll get to that a little bit later, um, but it's always great to have you back here. I love Flagstaff. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to coming back. Do you um, do you heart Pluto? Oh, of course I heart Pluto. Nice. I think everybody hearts Pluto. You know, Pluto's yeah. the best. Uh, you know, you don't see other planets out there having an I heart fill in the blank day. It's you know, right? Pluto. Pluto's <laughs> such an exciting world, you know, so for, for so long, we didn't know what it looked like. And then when we did, it's just amazing. So I, I think everybody loves Pluto. Gotta love Pluto. And you wouldn't want to diss the god of the underworld, just saying. That's right. That's right. Probably you not the be best careful. idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about you a little bit, Kathy. And 
look at your how you got into all this great science. Um, first of all, let's talk about your early years where you grew up. So I grew up in Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Oof, um, cold. Yeah, yeah, it's cold there, but it's a beautiful uh, part of the country and lots of lakes and uh, really a, a great place to grow up. Um, and uh, then I went to school uh, on the East Coast uh, at MIT, got a degree in aerospace engineering. Um, but when I was a kid, I was always interested in science and math and and always asking those questions of, you know, why this, why that? You know, a lot of kids stopped doing that after a little while. I was one of those annoying, annoying kids who kind of never did, you know, how does gravity work? What do, what do we, why, why do we know about that? And the teachers would be like, mm, okay. <laughs> and it seems like you had interest in everything, geology, paleontology, archaeology, medicine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did, did you you have- know, I, when I was when I was little, I was really into geology, archaeology, uh, dinosaurs, uh, ancient hominids. Um, you know, not like Dr. Donald Johansson, of course. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. at the you know young child interest level, and yeah, I, I had a rock collection. I had a rock tumbler so I could make the rocks pretty. And you know, when we drive through a cut of the road. Um, I would ask my parents if we could tr- get off the road and maybe I could get a sample of the rock cut. Um, that's where it came in being really handy that I was an only child <laughs> so they could <laughs> indulge me. Uh, yeah. And I still have my rock collection from when I was in elementary school. Uh, nice. Not all of them, but, so but a, cool. a couple of boxes of really good rocks I've kept with me all this time. You know, you've got a nerd when you've um, got your pockets full of rocks, because I know I used to do that. And all of my favorite science nerdy love people are like, oh, man, I used to fill my pockets with rocks, too. There are rocks everywhere. We all still have our rock collection. So I love that you did that. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's so accessible to kids, you know, mm-hmm. rocks, you're you're out, you're walking around, you see something, it's like, why does this rock look different than that rock? And that's the beginning of all scientific questions, right? Why is it this way? And uh, so, yeah, no, I love geology. Yeah, that's a very human sort of thing. Yeah, the scales are right, right? We're not talking about quantum physics, and we're not talking about, you know, the galaxy, uh, it's, it's very accessible. Yeah. Just immediately like, why is it hot outside right now? Why does this rock look like this? That's right. <laughs> I have a quick question. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure in your industry it's, it's pretty typical, but, um, you know, and you just kind of like say like, oh yeah, I went to MIT. I just, that's so cool. Uh, that's really, really neat and very impressive. And I'd love to know, like, um, you know, just, thinking about our celebration of international women in like science. Um, what was that like being at MIT? Um, was like the application process nerve wracking? Or I'm thinking of our listeners who are also interested in that sort of career path. If you have any advice for, um, you know, getting into a school like MIT, which is just really neat. So that's, yeah. I'm very impressed. Thanks. Um, don't be so impressed. It's it's oh, just okay. a school. <laughs> it's just MIT. Come on. It's just MIT. Yeah. You might have heard of it. Come on. Yeah. So I I often work with a lot of high school kids and and so I I talk to them about colleges 
They often want to know, how do you get into MIT? And frankly, there's a lot of luck involved in getting into someplace like MIT. But the one thing that I always try and, and tell them is that there's no one school for you. You can be successful at many different schools. Um, and, and so it's what you make out of the experience. You can go to MIT and, and learn a ton and do great. You can also go to MIT, skate through, and, and not make the most of it. And that goes for any university. And so to me, I just want to remind students out there, because it is kind of the time of year when they're hearing back from schools, that there is not just one school for you. You can be an amazing, successful professional, no matter where you go to school, it's you apply yourself and, um, and just do your best. But I will say your question about application and stuff like that, um, I will say I applied early to MIT. This is, you know, eons ago now, um, you know, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Right. (laughs) um, And and I didn't get in early. And then I applied, you know, rolled it over to the regular admissions and I didn't get in regular. I got put on the waiting list and um, and, you know, I was going to go somewhere else. And then early that summer, I got off the waiting list and ended up deciding to go to to MIT. And so I mention it because. you know, it's hard to not get in someplace where you set your mind to. And and you just have to know that that you can be successful no matter what. I love that. Especially as someone who went to a state school, I think that's inspiring for a lot of people um, and young women who really want to get into science. So thanks for expanding on that. Sure. Was there anything in particular that spurred your interest in science? I mean, or was it just being a kid walking around finding rocks and fossils? You know, I, I think it was my parents mainly. Uh, um, uh, my dad uh, is a retired anesthesiologist and my mom is a very curious person and they would indulge me in what I was interested in. And so we would talk about uh, science uh, quite often. We also talked about, you know, history and what was going on in the world. But I, I think since my interest gravitated towards uh, science, and I also really liked math always. I, I um, um, liked math a lot, um, although <laughs> when I was little, the teachers didn't think I liked math. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, when I was in third grade, the teachers thought that I maybe had a, quite a deficiency there. And uh, should be put in a special program because of that. Um, so my parents came up with a, a game where if I could come up with the change before the cashier, you know, back before everybody paid in credit cards for everything, um, <laughs> then I could get the change. And of course, I always got the change. And they're like, well, she can do math just fine, right? <laughs> it was, you know, third grade math that was appropriate. So um, anyways, I, I think my parents were very, uh, are very supportive, uh, you know, to this day, of course, still. And, and that helped me, you know, develop those interests and take them to the fullest. How'd you, uh, how'd you end up in planetary science in specific? Cause I, I know on your, on your Wikipedia page, which 
That's always very scary. <laughs> 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 Is that you were pre-med originally? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, my, my dad uh, was an anesthesiologist. And so medicine is what I knew. And so, you know, by the time you're like late in high school, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Well, the only thing I really know is medicine. Okay, I'll, I'll be pre-med. Um, and and I went to MIT and I took, you know, biology and organic chemistry. <laughs> and then I, you know, as you do when you're a freshman in college, you look around and you see that the world is so much bigger than you realized uh, when you were in high school. And I was like, wow, I could get a degree in making spacecraft. Well, of course I want to do that. You know? That's a thing. Right, right. That's a thing. Of course I want to do yeah. that. You know, and and so um then I changed my major, uh, became an aerospace engineer, which of course, Wesley still doesn't answer your question of how I became a planetary scientist. <laughs> it's, it's a long path. It's getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting closer. And then, um, or I further, a, out, yeah, I guess. That's right. That's right. And then I got a master's in aerospace engineering. And then I, uh, got a, a dream job at JPL doing navigation. And, uh, that was great. You know, I was at the place to do, uh, interplanetary spacecraft. That was pretty cool. What's JPL? Oh, sorry. JPL is a jet propulsion lab and it's in Pasadena and it runs a lot of the, um, interplanetary missions, especially the Mars missions, the Mars rovers. So while I was at JPL, uh, I was, uh, working on Cassini. Um, and this was before it had launched because it was a long time ago. And I went to a science team meeting and I heard what they were talking about. And then I thought, whoa, those questions are really things I want to know the answer to. And I think I want to do that. Uh, so then I applied to graduate school and um, became a planetary scientist. Um but it was kind of a big pivot. So I guess I have a short attention span, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> you sound very curious, which I love. It sounds like a, a, a constant curiosity. I am. I, I'm, I'm very curious. I think uh, that attribute is essential if you want to be a scientist. You know, If you're not asking questions, you're not going to be understanding uh, new things and formulating problems to understand things that others haven't asked before, perhaps. Yeah. Um, did you have any like big mentors along the way? Um, I had quite a few mentors. Uh, uh, probably the most significant mentor I had was uh, Jim Elliott. He was my thesis advisor uh, in graduate school, and he had a joint appointment at Lowell Observatory. And so my roots back to northern Arizona uh go back to when I was a graduate student and uh, I would spend uh, January and often the summers at Lowell Observatory uh, doing research there with Jim. And he taught me so many things. I, I, I can't, um, I wouldn't be the scientist I am today without uh, Jim Elliott. And the uh, things like making sure I understood uncertainties in a very quantitative way, right? That's a very technical thing. But then also um, understanding uh, how to write a scientific paper, how to formulate a question, how to be a responsible observer. You know, telescope time is very precious. And you come to the telescope prepared with a schedule 
and then you execute on that. And, you know, you shouldn't be wasting any time uh, while you're observing. And uh, so I learned a lot of things from Jim. And I want to shout out to another mentor of mine. And that is Amanda Bosch, who is at Lowell Observatory. Amanda is amazing. I'm such a fangirl. (laughs) Yes, yes. She she is great. And I also wouldn't be where I am today without uh, Amanda's help. Um, When I was a brand new graduate student, uh, Jim was on sabbatical in Hawaii. And uh, Amanda took me under her wing and taught me um, many of the basics of observing. And there are probably hundreds of people out there who could say, that Amanda has taught them how to observe. And that's really quite a contribution. And then, and then after graduating um, with my PhD, uh, I worked for Amanda at Lowell Observatory. So uh, big shout out to Amanda, who's awesome. You know, I, I, it's just fun to hear you talk about your early days in the science because where we're broadcasting my office with Jim Elliott's office, when he was here, you know, right by the apartment where you guys had dinner and where he stayed and everything. And whenever I hear his name, I, I mean, I didn't know him as well as you do, but I, he would come out here and he was just such a great person and a great mentor, not just to scientists, but I, every year, maybe you went on one of these trips down into the Grand Canyon. I, I love those. Yeah. Yes. And would lead these trips. And one year I went along with the students and one of the staff had a young a young son. He was seven. His name was Kevin also. And Jim just took him under his wing, you know, like a like a second dad. And, and it was really special to see that. And and Jim just sometime I'll have to tell you another story about Jim that I can't share on the air, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember so many times being at Lowell. One thing that I loved about Jim is that he'd like to go for a walk and talk. And so that is so important to get moving, right? Move your body. And and so we would um, walk through the, the forest uh, fire roads uh, and talk about like, what are we going to do next on this project? And what are the stumbling blocks? And how are we going to set this up? And, you know, have a really great technical discussion as we're walking. But that wasn't quite enough. So he decided we were going to map the fire roads. So we got a helmet and put a GPS antenna on it because it was before the day of cell phones. And so we had a, we would wear the GPS helmeted hat so that we could be useful in mapping the fire roads while we're talking about science and trying to get some exercise. That's incredible. And, yeah. And I kind of feel like that epitomizes, you know, Jim. That's amazing. I have a very important question. How dopey did the hat with the antenna on it look? It looked, actually, I thought it looked pretty cool. <laughs> a scientist would, though. Yeah, I thought it looked pretty cool. And, you know, frankly, we were walking the fire roads behind Lowell, so no one was seeing us very much. But, uh, you know, it, it was, like, pretty neat. You know, that's a great tradition at Lowell. And one of your colleagues now at Southwest Research Institute, John Spencer, who had been an astronomer here, he um, created a, ma- a topo map of the fire roads. And we still use that today. It's been, gosh, at least a dozen years since he's been here. And we still use this map all the time. Oh, that's so great. That's I'll a, let John know. Yeah. A long tradition of, of doing science on walks here. 
And you mentioned something um, that is still mind boggling to me. Um, in, in the comments here, Wesley was like, mm, this can get pretty technical pretty fast. But <laughs> you said something about um, where you learn to understand uncertainties. And I, from an English major perspective, I'm like, what? <laughs> right. What so I mean, explain. yeah. So if somebody tells you uh, some number, like let's say um, the temperature, let me tell you, say that it's, you know, it's probably... 15 degrees outside where I am right now. Well, that's meaningless unless you have an idea of how uncertain that measurement is. For temperature outside, you know, it's probably plus and minus a small fraction of a degree. But if you're measuring the temperature, say, on uh, an asteroid, it might be plus or minus 15 degrees. Well, it's really important to understand how well you know the number you know, what's the uncertainty in the value that someone's telling you? Mm. And and so Jim was, you know, a big advocate of making sure that if you're going to say that the value is something, you better have a really solid understanding of what your uncertainties are that went into that. And and gotcha. this is where it could get really complicated, But I so I won't go into it. But there's lots of different <laughs> types of uncertainties and how do you quantify them and stuff like that. And it's so, a really important okay. part of being a scientist. So that's like um, context, basically, giving context. for Yeah, you could think of it as giving context like or that. giving um, almost more credibility, like how much do you mm. really know it, right? I'd love to hear um, like your quick elevator speech on um, how a planet is made and what kind of stars can create planets. Okay. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, this is good. This is this is a challenge because you know how a planet is made. I could launch into like an hour long exposition of right. it, right? And so um, early in a star's life, there is a disk of gas and dust, and that gas and dust um, accumulates into bigger and bigger particles. And there's lots of details I just glossed over, um, but those bigger and bigger particles can eventually be uh, big and have their own gravity. So it pulls in more material like Jupiter got big fast and then could pull in a lot of the gas from this disk. And uh, that's generally how the planets form in a really short <laughs> statement. <laughs> well, I love that too, because it gives context for our, um, even the podcast name, Star Stuff and Carl yes. Sagan's, a, a beautiful quote that, you know, we are all made of star stuff. It so. is a beautiful quote. And yeah, and, and looking at stars, you know, um, the stars are what makes the heavier uh, molecules in our universe. And so you can't have the very first generation of stars be making rocky planets, uh, which I think goes to part of what you were asking. Yeah. And it's usually like um, like a third generation star that can yeah. create a planet, right? Yep. So yeah. our sun was made from another star that went supernova, that was made from another star that went supernova and on the way gathered up all this cool stuff that made Earth. 
That's right. That's right. And so it's, uh, and it's hard to wrap your head around that much history because yeah. there's, there's the history of the earth and our solar system, which is about, uh, four and a half billion years old. But then of course there's the whole, you know, you know, history of the universe that predates that significantly. And, um, very excited, uh, with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope and getting yes. Webb to L2 and everything's looking great, it sounds like. And, you know, the science that's going to come from that, looking back even further into the history of uh, where we live that's in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. We're all so excited about the James Webb. Um. Can you talk a little bit about your specific thoughts on the current definition of planets, according to a, a certain three-letter body of science? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I can talk about the definition of planets. Uh, the IAU uh, defined a planet, uh, one of its traits is that it has to orbit the sun. By that, it means our sun. And um, this this may not be the one that you were expecting me to talk about, but I'll I'll start there, because I feel like it's a little short sighted to think of all the planets that are around other suns, and they're not planets, <laughs> call them exoplanets, but really it's just that they're around another sun. So mm-hmm. I think they're planets, um, <laughs> and then of course. Uh, where Pluto becomes involved is the uh, part where the IAU says that to be a planet, you would have had to clear your the vicinity. So gravitationally, you would have needed to remove the smaller bodies that were share an orbit similar to yours. Um, to be honest, one of the things I really dislike about that is that it's not quantitative. So getting back to how do you know, right? How do you assess how clear is clear enough? There's near-Earth asteroids that fly by the Earth all the time. We've heard of Mm -hmm. them in the news just recently. Um, And yet, Earth is a planet. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, there's more material in the Kuiper belt, um, but but they weren't quantitative about it. And and honestly, uh, I always refer to Pluto as a planet. I... I, Yay! Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's... when I want to talk about Pluto and I want to talk, compare its atmosphere to other worlds, um, I am not hung up on what the nomenclature is, but the natural word that comes out of my mouth to talk about Pluto is planet. You know, it's, it's got fascinating geology and really uh, um, interesting atmosphere and it has moons of its own and it's, uh, you know, so... That's my take on the IAU. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you're with us on Pluto being a planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Particularly the exoplanets thing always really grinds my gears too, because people always people always come to Lowell and then ask questions about exoplanets and rogue planets, and I'm like, well, those are that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> ruining my life. Yeah. <laughs> I think nomenclature should make it easier for people to talk about it. And, and I, I, I find 
that in some ways, like you're talking about with exoplanets, it makes it harder to talk about it because it makes it seem like it's something other. And, and it's, and it's not. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> before, before we all get too heated. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you've been involved with a number of uh, observations of occultations. Can you talk a little bit about that? I love occultations. They're such that? Yeah. So a stellar occultation is when you watch um, an object pass in front of a distant star. So let's think about Pluto, for example. Um, so you watch Pluto pass in front of a star and the starlight will dim out slowly because Pluto has an atmosphere and that atmosphere is bending the starlight. And then when it, the star is behind Pluto, you don't see any of the starlight anymore and then it comes out the other side. So you get a history of the light that you can see as a function of time. And that is very indicative of properties of these worlds. So if you have an atmosphere Mm. like Pluto, you can understand the pressure and temperature as a function of altitude from the stellar occultation. Wow. And it's it's really powerful because you can get much higher spatial resolution information than you can from any imaging technique because you're using the starlight as a probe of the atmosphere and the time cadence of images that you're taking to understand and probe the atmosphere of Pluto, let's say, in a Pluto occultation. And and so it's an amazing technique. And then if a world doesn't have an atmosphere, it can be used to understand its size and shape. It can be really hard to understand the size of, say, an asteroid um, because it could be small and really bright, highly reflective, or it could be really dark surface, so it doesn't reflect a lot of light, and much bigger. And one way to break that Uh, to separate that out and to understand it is to do a stellar occultation where you'd watch the asteroid pass in front. And there's uh, been a lot of great uh, occultation work uh, by many people at Lowell, people Mm. at my institution. My uh, thesis was on stellar occultations uh, of Triton, Neptune's largest moon, Uh, I always wanted to do a Pluto occultation when I was a graduate student but Pluto wasn't in a dense part of the sky. So it wasn't until after I got my PhD that I could finally get the, my, my first Pluto occultation under my belt, but have observed a number of them since. That's awesome. And this is another connection to Jim Elliott. He was kind of the godfather of occultations. Um, you know, if you hadn't gone to MIT, would you ever have gotten into those, do you think? Well, so it's kind of interesting because when I was uh, getting my master's in aerospace engineering, I I was at Stanford and working for um, von Eschelman, and he was studying the Pluto light curve that Jim had observed on the KAO um, in the late 1980s. And so before I had met Jim or had a chance to go to graduate school, um, I was modeling uh, data that he had taken. 
So um, maybe I maybe I wouldn't have come back to it, but I definitely he was he was such a powerhouse that uh, even without working for him, I was working on data that he had taken. <laughs> yeah, right. So so you mentioned you've you've been uh, done a lot of occultations, and occultations can happen anywhere in the world. It's a narrow narrow area. Um, since you've been on many, is there one that stands out as like, you know, they all have seem to have some level of adventure um, because yes. they can be really in the middle of nowhere. Is there one that really stands out that was really kind of wacky or, you know? You oh, there are so many ball? stories. Yes. Okay. So I'll tell you <laughs> one. Um, so it was Larry Wasserman, who's at Lowell, and I were uh, going to observe a Pluto occultation with a, a whole bunch of other people. And so we all met at uh, the uh, Moudon Observatory outside of Paris and made a plan for where everybody was going to go. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You get Hello. to, yeah. Um, and so the advantage of having a lot of observers is that you get uh, different people looking at different parts of the planet, you can put it together into a very comprehensive picture. So uh, that's one of the things I love about occultations is it's very team oriented as well. So, so Larry and I were assigned to go to Switzerland and they said, there's, there's a telescope in this small town, go there and, and see, you know, if you what? can observe there. So Larry and I get on the train <laughs> And we go to Switzerland and um, we, we get there in the middle of the night. And I and at the time, the Swiss didn't take euros. I don't know if they do. I don't remember if they do now or not. But like we had euros, but not the Swiss currency. And so anyways, we finally get like a place to stay in a rental car. And the next day we wake up and, and drive to this small town and find the people with the observatory Um and we're talking to them and they're like, yeah, let's take you out to go see it. And it was a relatively small telescope and it was right on the side of a ski slope. So people are skiing next to oh us. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's February. So it's free. It's cold in Switzerland and people are skiing by and we're looking at this telescope, which was a very nice telescope, but it was built in a, a room of cinder blocks. And because it was February and, and Pluto, that meant that it, Pluto was gonna be very low in the sky during the occultation. <laughs> so we look at the lines of sight and we realize we can't observe from here because we'd have to knock a hole in their wall. And that, <laughs> that wasn't gonna work. So we're like, oh no, what do we do? <laughs> okay, so we, we talked to the people there and they're like, okay, there's this other town and we just opened an astrophotography bed and breakfast. So go to the small what? town, yeah, called Lou, L-U. So, so we get in the car and we're driving and then it's Switzerland. So there was like this, this big tunnel and you had to put the car on a train to go through the tunnel. I'm yeah. sorry. Are you James Bond <laughs> yeah, of astronomy? Like, right. that's incredible. It was crazy, and so so we we finally we at first missed the 
exit for the small town. And then we realized we'd gone too far and we're like almost to the Austrian and Italian border. And then we turn around and go back up the mountain and there's cows in the middle of the street. Like this is how small a town it is. And we're like trying to wait for the cows to go. And our directions were go to the end of the road and we're the yellow house. And I'm like, we're never going to find this, right? (laughs) That's, that doesn't work in the United States, right? But sure enough, we drove to the end of the road and there was a yellow house. We knocked on the door. Yeah. And and this was in the part of Switzerland where they spoke Romanesh. And, you know, I have, I speak some French and Larry speaks something and, but none of, neither of us spoke Romanesh. And we're thinking, are we going to be able to talk to these people? Well, they, they had perfect English. They they could speak English, unfortunately. And, and they had um, basically closed up most of their telescopes because it was the middle of the winter and freezing cold, but they had a couple of piers near their house, like telescope mounts, and we could put our instrument on their telescope. So we did that. But our instrument was so heavy compared to the telescope that we couldn't cross the meridian, and no matter how much counterweights we put on this. Um, so we were going to oh, have no. to only start watching Pluto once it got on the side of the sky that we cared about. And so we're looking, and the Alps are unbelievably beautiful, covered in snow. And we figured that we'd just be able to see Pluto just above the mountain. and and. And so we're like, okay, we can set up here. So we set up there. The people were so nice. And we we had our tele- we had our computer outside, one of them, and then another one we realized we could set up inside so we didn't freeze. The cables um, got frozen into the ice. The computer oh outside was still working all night long, but the screen was frozen and, and not, not frozen like... Um, yeah, the way we usually mean it. I mean, actually, because of temperature. Oh, literally, literally, literally <laughs> you, you couldn't you couldn't use that screen, and so we just started it, and we were monitoring things from inside on a tele- on a computer that was warmer, and uh, we ended up uh, observing the occultation. It was quite an adventure. The people there were uh, wonderful, such wonderful people um, who helped us at their astrophotography bed and breakfast. And then to celebrate, they had a bottle of champagne and the guy opened it with a sword, like breaking it off. So, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of memorable stories. Kathy, that's the coolest story I've ever heard about astronomy for any scientist who's like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to be an astronomer. I'm just going to be holed up in a room looking at pictures. That rules. Oh, what? That rules. Yeah. It's yeah. that heating your computers is the problem. Right. That's issue. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is insane. So yeah. you have to travel to view these occultations? You can't just see them from anywhere? No, you can't. It's like um, a solar eclipse. Remember when the solar eclipse went by mm. and yeah. you had to be, you know, in the right place at the right time? That's another thing I love about occultations. It's So it's exactly the same. The, the Instead of the, the shadow from the, you know, cast by, you know, the, the moon, you know, going by, you're seeing shadow of Pluto from the distant star go past the earth. And so it's, it's the track can be pretty small and you have to be in the right place at the right time, which adds a sense of urgency. And there's no like, Oh, I'll just wait till it's clear. 
Um, so weather factors into it. Like one thing in the story about Switzerland is when we went through the um, tunnel on the train with the car on the train, um, the weather got way better on the other side of the mountains. I'm like, oh, this is where we need to be, right? And mm-hmm. and it was great to have that adventure and uh, with Larry. And um, um, occultations, again, English major, the root word occult, <laughs> is it because it's so much chaos and so much crazy stuff to observe these or was it some myth maybe? No, I, I actually think it's like occult like cover, but I'm not, oh. but not being the English major, I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Okay. We should just end the podcast now. No more episodes ever. That was the coolest that's story that's we're cool ever going to hear. Like we've, we've peaked at episode, you know, six or five, whatever <laughs> we're on. <laughs> We got to stay on the theme of adventure a little bit. Right. Yeah. Have, you, yeah. have you flown on Sophia or I, I think KO, the Kuiper Airborne was before your time maybe? No, actually. Like, so the um, my very first occultation observation was on the KAO, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, which is the predecessor to Sophia. And so we went down um, to the southern tip of South America um, to Punta Arenas, Chile. And so we was uh, included uh, Jim Elliott and Ted Dunham. And this was in 1993 to observe a Triton occultation. And I'll have to, you know, I, um, so I did get to observe on the KAO and a, another observation as well on the KAO. Can you um, just briefly describe, uh, I think we said Airborne Observatory, but just exactly what that is, because that's just it's remarkable to think of what it takes to get a telescope on Earth to operate, but this is one that's flying on a plane. So maybe just explain a little bit what those airborne observatories are. Sure. So an airborne observatory is that you put a telescope on a plane, and the big advantage is that you can get above clouds and above water vapor and um, so that it's easier to see in the infrared. There's many more uh, windows of opportunity in wavelength space to be able to see. And so that's why you do it. The Kuiper Airborne Observatory was a modified C-141 aircraft, and part of it had a, um, it was about a one meter telescope, um, and it was basically had a pressure bulkhead separating it from the rest of the fuselage, the rest of the inside of the airplane. And there was a a place where you could, connect your instruments and basically um, an area that you could have your instrumentation and and be able to get your data through that pressure bulkhead. And so you sat on the plane and commanded the telescope that was just behind a wall, but was open to the air as you're flying high, you know, 40,000 feet, you know, uh, above uh, the surface of the earth. And um, so, so, that's pretty interesting. We had to go to high altitude uh, training to do that. To Terrifying. Sh- oh, it was so fun. It was <laughs> awesome. So in the, the high altitude training, you want to be able to recognize signs of hypo- hypoxia. So you know what to do if there's a, either a slow leak or a fast leak. And so they put us in this um, uh, chamber and then slowly took the air out, the oxygen out, and you're 
they gave us a little worksheet to do. And I remember thinking at the beginning, oh, this is easy. And I was just doing my worksheet. And then as a time went on, I'm like, oh, there's too many words in that problem. I need a math problem. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, I don't have enough oxygen. <laughs> that is a sign that I can't think clearly when I'm trying to go to numbers instead of words. Oh, no. <laughs> So, but oh, the KU no. is, is an amazing facility and um, has been really uh, good for uh, many different science uh, activities. And then the SOFIA took on after that and um, is in partnership between NASA and uh, Germany. And the cellar occultations are continuing to be done on SOFIA as well as many other interesting science projects. Speaking of science projects, you've been involved in a lot, in a lot of missions. (laughs) So Um, much. And probably most famously, at least up to this point, is New Horizons. Mm -hmm. So um, just tell us a little bit about what your role was with that. And and you got to share some of the excitement also on that that day in July 2015 when Pluto went from a dot to a world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I have worn many different hats on, on New Horizons. And um, and I love that because I like having new and different challenges. Um, I'm a co-investigator on the science mission. I uh, have been deputy project scientist on the mission. I'm currently the principal investigator for the Ralph instrument, which is the color camera and infrared imaging spectrometer. Um, but we launched in 2006. And it took uh, nine and a half years to get to Pluto. We couldn't see any surface details from what we could see from even the best telescopes on Earth or in Earth orbit, like the Hubble Space Telescope. It was going to take sending a spacecraft there to be able to reveal things about the surface. And so in the summer of 2015, we were getting close and we kept getting closer. And in um, in uh, April of 2015, we took our first color image uh, of Pluto, um, and we couldn't. We still couldn't see any surf de- surface detail with the Ralph instrument, but we were getting so close. By the time June came around, the LORI camera, the LORI instruments are high resolution black and white imager. Uh, we were starting to see surface details that we could never see before. Every day in June, we'd come in and there'd be more data on the ground. And oh, look at this! What does this mean? What's that look like? And and every day we had just leaps and bounds more information than we had ever had for decades before about Pluto. You know, every once in a while, there'd be a big way to help understand more about Pluto. Like when, when Jim um, observed the Pluto occultation in the late eighties and then some work um, done by a number of people on uh, mapping, putting, surface maps together um, from HST. But this was every day was like that major revelation. It just kept getting better and better. And and we flew by on, um, on July uh, 14th, 2015. And that was our closest approach. And we just started getting more and more data down. And, and it was amazing. I remember we put up <laughs> this... Uh, great image on the the big screen at the applied physics lab in Maryland where our mission operations center was. And we're all like pointing at different features. Oh, look at this and look at that. You know, we discovered that there was a glacier of 
methane and nitrogen ice on Pluto. And, and we didn't know that before. And, and mountains, and we've been talking about, you know, could Pluto support topography and do we, do we think there'll be mountains there? And well, sure enough, we found out there were mountains there. But there was one image that came down. So the, the data took more than a year to get down. Um, so that day was amazing, but er, the days before it were all amazing and the days after it were all amazing too. And there was one day that fall, um, I think it was in September and it was a Sunday and there's going to be this image that came down that we took just 15 minutes from closest approach. And it was, uh, an MVIC image, which is our, um, part of the Ralph instrument. It was a black and white image, but it's very wide field of view. And I knew it was coming down. So it was like six in the morning and I got up and I was trying to get it as soon as possible to see what it looked like because I was worried about it. It was so near closest approach that it was hard to compensate for the motion of the spacecraft flying by Pluto. We flew by at about uh, 14 kilometers per second. So very fast. So um, yeah, it's like running a 10K in less than a second. So uh, compensating, imagine you're taking pictures as you're traveling that quickly and you don't want to smear them. And so um, we had this very com- very complicated method that um, the engineers and science sequencers had determined for how we were going to compensate for this motion. And we hadn't really been able to test it out uh, on the way to Pluto. So this was going to be a, a real test to see what this one image, because it was the trickiest one to get. And I brought it down on my computer and it is absolutely amazing. And you could see all these details. You could see the atmosphere and you could see this glacier and, and so many different things, but it really epitomizes what everybody can do if they work together. And um, so I love that. that was one of That's my so favorite. Cool. So it cool. is my favorite image. Everyone was really excited for you to appear here. Um, but on Instagram, we have um, one of our followers, Space Cowboy, whose name is also Cody. Um, he asked, did, any new Hori- did New Horizons discover anything that was completely unexpected by the team? And I know you mentioned like topography on Pluto. Um, was there anything else there? Yeah, uh, definitely. So the big thing that I think, yeah, the big thing that was totally unexpected was the glacier. So there's this glacier on Pluto and we can see evidence of convection. So like heat rising underneath and then coming up and spreading out. And so you can, there's these um, polygonal patterns that are indicative of convection going on, on uh, the glacier on Pluto which is mind-blowing when you think about it because Pluto at the time was more than 32 times further away from the sun than Earth is. And, you know, that kind of heating is powered by sunlight. So it was like a thousand times less sunlight because it goes as the distance squared Mm -hmm. to to see evidence of convection uh, in the glacier uh, really was amazing. That's awesome. interesting things i mean new horizons was such a major project but it's one of many things you're involved with Mm -hmm. Um, there's another mission you're involved with and this is you know 
you're going to spend the rest of your career working at looking at New Horizons data, probably. <laughs> but, but there's so much more. And there's the mission that, that launched just last October, the Lucy mission. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what its goal is and what your part is? Yeah, I'm the deputy principal investigator on Ooh. NASA's Lucy mission to the Trojan asteroids. Yeah, so that means I'm basically the number two person uh, on awesome. the mission. That Thank is you. so cool. <laughs> it is really cool. And uh, we are going to visit Trojan asteroids. These are asteroids um, that you probably didn't hear about when you were in school. They uh, share an orbit with Jupiter. There's two clumps of them, um, one group ahead of Jupiter and one group behind Jupiter. And they uh, reside in the L4 and L5 Lagrange points of the Jupiter-Sun system, which I probably wouldn't usually talk too much about, but with everybody talking about web nowadays and it's going mm -hmm. to the L2 Lagrange point, I feel like the Lagrange points really are having their day and we can talk about them all we want. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> Lagrange point. Yeah. Yay. Yay. And, and so these asteroids um, uh, may have formed at further distances from the sun and then captured early in the solar system's evolution as the giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, migrated outward from the sun. And so these are like leftover building blocks from the giant planets and no one has ever visited this population before. And we are going to go visit um, eight different asteroids uh, with one spacecraft over the course of 12 years. One of the asteroids is a main belt asteroid, and then the rest are Trojan asteroids. And the main belt asteroid, uh, we named Donald Johansson. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. How yeah. So cool. we're, we're going to take Lucy to go visit Donald Johansson, which I think is so <laughs> cool. And um, in, in honor of Donald Johansson, who uh, was a discoverer of the Lucy fossil and the Lucy mission is named after the Lucy fossil. Because which all it, goes back to the Beatles, <laughs> which all goes back to the Beatles, Lucy yeah. in the Sky with Diamonds. There's so many fun ways to have fun with this mission, and then just a and, bunch of nerds everywhere. Oh my gosh, I just thought <laughs> right. that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Stop, yes, my heart. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have a diamond on the spacecraft. There's really? actually, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love you guys. So yeah. Awesome. yeah, it's That's a it's adorable. actually a optical element in one of our instruments is a cultured diamond. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, yeah, That's stop. Awesome. That's yeah, yeah. That's yeah, so it's it's not just like tacked on there. Yeah. It's it's actual functional. Um, so oh my god, it's pretty cool. That gave me that gave me goosebumps. That is so <laughs> neat. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and so we named the Lucy mission after Lucy fossil because the Lucy fossil really revolutionized our understanding of hominid evolution, just like the Lucy mission aims to understand or revolutionize our understanding of uh, solar system evolution. Oh and we're, we're really excited for the iHeart Pluto Festival to have you and Don Johansson mm -hmm. um, and others there tying this all together. It, it's really just a great story. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. And Don is awesome to talk to, so I'm really excited to be a panelist with him. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure it's still a male-dominated field, but I know that there are a lot of just incredible women like you, like paving the way for other women to follow in your footsteps. What would you tell young women who are have an interest in science as they, you know, if there are any issues of like intimidation or hopefully we're getting to a world where like women in STEM, it's not 
um, too shocking for, for the younger generations, but I know there will always be hurdles. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and how, uh, what you would tell them. Yeah, I would tell them if you want to be a scientist, an engineer, mathematician, whatever, go for it. Um, I would also say, you know, uh, get to know people in the field. Uh, you know, uh, I personally am shy. I know that may not seem like certainly was shy or more shy when I was younger. So, you know, that was hard for me going up and introducing myself to people and asking about their science, but just, you know, do it. That's, that's, that's what you need to do. And, and so, uh, you know, engage with people in the community, find your people, right. You know, there's a lot of great people to work with and, and search them out and, and learn from them. And so, uh, jump right in, give it a try, even though you might be the only woman in the room, doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Just, just do it. And <laughs> don't put up with any bullshit. Well, thank you so much for joining us. One of the coolest episodes. I think I, I can't wait to get all of the questions uh, from our audience about this one. Is there a good place for people to find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at Colkin, C-O-L-K-I-N. We also have a Twitter at StarStuffPod. And of course, Lowell Observatory is at Lowell Obs. Um, and if anyone has any questions for Kathy, Send them in via Twitter, uh, tweet her directly, or you can email us at info at lol.edu if you have any questions about this podcast. Thank you so much, Kathy. What a what a great what a great episode. And thank you for inspiring so many women and just people around the world because you've really accomplished so many incredible things. Thank you. Thank you. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 